Welcome to the Neural Network. Today I have two very special guests, Peter and Tracy Flukey from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Now, what makes them special is they are obviously um, endurance athletes for anyone that knows them, ultra endurance athletes, I think I should say. That's probably <laughs> the best way to say it. So they have actually ridden their tandem bicycle across the United States, the entire United States, from one coast to the other, which is nothing short of an impressive feat, especially on a bicycle built for two. Also do a lot of work. Is it best to say uh, with with your company, with WeBike, um, is it advocacy or is it consulting? What's the best way to... Yeah, I mean, we usually describe it as pedestrian and bicycle safety consulting, but we do it nationally. So, yeah, we can tell you more about that if you want. Perfect. So you guys wrote a book, (laughs) Coast to Coast on a Tandem, and uh, riding with your spouse six inches behind you from one coast to the other. Now, that is nothing short of a miracle in my mind. And uh, it, the, the book was fascinating and it was an impre- it was a it's a great read. It's an easy read. And what I found so entertaining about it is that uh, it brings up a lot of things in cycling or even endurance sports in general that you don't normally think about being the fact that you're you're out there alone on the side of the road on a bike. And so what was, you know, when you guys were, were thinking about devising the plan to ride from, from one coast to the other, what is it that was sort of that spark that said, you know what, let's do that. (laughs) You know, we had talked about it for many years and it was kind of on a bucket list type thing and everything just lined up that it was time to go ahead and do it. And we had cycled and ran and worked out for many, many years and, had started to travel on our bicycle on more and more long, longer trips up to get you up to about three weeks. And then we said, okay, we can put a bunch of three weeks together and get across the country. So that was kind of the start of it or us saying, okay, we can do this and to decide to go ahead and go for it. How much, how much training do you have to do? <laughs> I mean, so it, it, I guess I'll bring it back. So like for, for anyone that's unaware of endurance, training or endurance exercise like there's there's many different types there's ultras where it's like you're just going for a very 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 long time which requires a different set of of muscles than that of you know short and uh you know speed type based endurance sports so like with cycling you can have criteriums that are fast and short or you can have centuries which are like 100 mile rides and then you can have ultra stuff and same thing goes for running and it's like it's a totally different experience and uh you know, I've I've always had a appreciation um, for for the both of you because I know I've sucked on. Uh, I think I I don't know if I've ever sucked wheel on your, your tandem, but I know for sure that I've sucked Peter's wheel before <laughs> when I was racing bikes. You know, leaving from the bike shop, and I'm like, God, he's fast. <laughs> he's thirty years older than me. I can't even complain. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but like when when you, so when you were devising the idea of all right, we're going to ride our bikes for like, what was it? 50 to a hundred miles ish per day, roughly. Yeah. For yeah. How, how many weeks was it? Total? Uh, was it? Well, it was 72 days. So three months. So yeah. Three, yeah. And so that's like, that's, that's such a long time on the legs. And so when you, when you thought about devising or looking into training, what did you, what did you start with? So the, the first thing I knew enough about, um, endurance training. I've run a number of marathons. I've, I've bicycled long distances, bonked repeatedly, <laughs> um, you know, we've done it wrong enough to know that 
I didn't feel like we knew enough about what we were doing and that we needed help. So the first thing we did is we sought out professional help um, <laughs> to, to really make sure we got this right. We knew we could do the work, right? We knew we had the background, but, you know, kind of in your realm, right? It's the, it's the physiology, it's the psychology of it. Um, and there were little things that I picked up along the way, like when I was being trained for my first marathon, the guy I was running with, we got to where we were doing 13 mile runs. And he said, he said, you could run a marathon now. He said, the next half of this training that we do is really to condition your brain to put up with the pain. And it was little things like that that made me start going, okay. And so we worked with, you know, some professional trainers who helped us devise um, a plan uh, to get us in really good shape, but also to develop strategies that we could use out of the road as well. Now, did you, did you, or, or did either of you grow up doing any sort of endurance type of sports, you know, because with the endurance sports of cycling or running or, you know, especially in the North cross-country skiing, which I mean, obviously I'm biased towards cycling and cross-country skiing, especially, but, um, you know, did, did you grow up doing that? Because typically, you know, it's one of those things that you get into almost later in life. You see a lot of people doing that, you know, you start off doing football and soccer and all that kind of stuff, but where, did you grow up doing any of it? Um, you know, I was a traditional three-sport athlete, so I did play basketball, played volleyball, and ran track. And I used to always think about, especially with basketball, I just thought it was funny that people go running any further than up and down a basketball court. I just thought, why did they do that? Um, so finally, many, many years later, um, I ran my first half marathon, but that was when I was 50. So that's when I started doing more of the endurance type stuff at more for running. I've always bicycled all my life, but never, never as far as, um, you know, no endurance type thing, just getting around and getting to places is what I did. So really, um, didn't do the distance until I was in my fifties or so before I decided, okay, let's do this, you know? Okay. So I get to, I get to out Tracy here because oh. I have a stud <laughs> of a stoker. So Tracy has got amazing quick twitch muscle. Yeah. So when she was in high school, she's five, nine, she could slam dunk a volleyball, <laughs> which is not normal. Right. Right. But it also is not going very far. So when we started doing these kinds of things, I was curious to see where that endurance limit would be for her. You know, if, if she just didn't have the muscle, um, I mean, we'll talk about this more later, but the, the kind of the joke is, is when you're on the tandem, and you're doing something extremely hard, like going up a really steep grade where you may have to bail. I would say to Tracy, are you okay? Are you okay? Because I wanted to make sure if we were going to stop suddenly that we were prepared for it. It took me a while to recognize that every single time I asked her that question, her response was, oh, I'm fine. What was really going on is I was about to blow up and I was putting Should it on her. Checking on you. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, she's the truly the athlete in the family. Um, but for me, in terms of endurance, I was a wrestler in high school. Uh -huh. And I think that that activity, that sport resets your perception of, of pain and what's hard. Because when you're going mano a mano, you go as hard as you have to for as long as you have to, to defeat your opponent and you train accordingly. And then I was also really lucky. I had a friend that was running cross country in seventh or eighth grade. 
and I would go out for runs with him. So that long distance endurance thing, um, and thank goodness I discovered endurance athletics because I have zero quick twitch muscle <laughs> in my body. You know, the white man can't jump thing. I'm a, I'm a very <laughs> average guy who's in usually really, really good shape. So the joke is it's my job not to screw up the gene pool in our family. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. With the, with the, with the wrestling, it's interesting that you bring it. So I, I compete in jujitsu right now and, uh, which, I mean, there's, there's a wrestling component in it, I guess, unless you decide to just sit down and fight from the ground, which, you know, if I, if I, if I see someone that's like, you know, got a wrestling Iowa bag or something on the side of the mat, you can bet that I'm just going to walk up and sit down and scoot my butt towards them. Exactly. Safest thing to do in that situation. But you know, you mentioned the thing with, with the pain and it's sort of a different, um, I, I shouldn't even say it's different, but the ability to endure pain for different periods of, of time, you know, with any sort of grappling sport like wrestling or jujitsu or anything like that. Um, there's obviously physical pain because it's part of the way that you can win is by inducing physical pain. Um, and so it's something that you sort of block out for a given period of time, you know, whether it be a five minute match or something like that. Um, but with the endurance sports, um, you know, and, and I suppose you, you could say the same thing about the traditional volleyball, basketball, something like that. If you're in for a given period or you're, you're in for a given period of time, I mean, you're going full gas yeah. during that time until like you get out. Um, but with the, with the endurance sport, you don't have that known set period of time for the most part. I mean, sometimes you do with races that are timed, um, mm -hmm. but for a lot of times, you know, it could be hours, it could be minutes, like it's, it's a, it's a totally different thing, but did, did you see that, you know, how well does the pain in <laughs> those short sports transfer over to the pain that you experience during a, you know, five hour long, six hour long ride? You know, it definitely is a different kind of pain. And I think our training helped, especially me, to be able to deal with that. Because when we were training for the ride, we were doing bricks. So some weekends we would actually run like five miles. Then we'd go on the bike for like 50 miles. And then we'd come back and we'd run another five miles. So it was helping us with that endurance end of it, you know, because obviously that's a long, slow, steady pace. Um but I think the, you know, the quick twitch or the short distance also helps with that because the pain is similar, but it's a quick pain with the shorter term and long term, it just goes forever and it may not get intense till the end or when you're getting, you know, towards the end of the ride, when you're really starting to fatigue. Hmm. Nick, you meant you'll, you'll know better than I, but it, it feels to me like there's a difference between chronic pain and acute pain. So it's the difference between running intervals where you feel like your chest is going to, you know, explode versus that, that slow and steady, you know, like trying to, trying to write when you have a sinus infection kind of thing, right? Where yeah. you almost want to crank it up just to be able to deal with it with a different mechanism. It seems like there are different coping mechanisms for different, um, for different types of pain. And, and by pain, I don't mean for people that don't understand what we do, this is not a bad thing. It's a challenge, right? It's there's there's a whole different focus that that comes with this. And it's not all day. It's not every day. It's, you know, certain periods of time. I mean, once we're two weeks into these trips, 
we know we can ride as far as we need to ride that day. And it's just a matter of how fast we're going to be able to do it. Because if we turn down the, the intensity a little bit, we're not going to experience anything that's going to keep us from completing that in that particular day. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring that up because like when you think about, I mean, there's obviously like slow pain fibers and fast pain fibers. You have your, your A delta fibers and your C fibers. And so, you know, like when you stub your toe, for example, you'll get that instant sharp pain that'll make you withdraw from it. And those are your, your fast pain fibers. And then afterwards gets this rush of like, you know, dull <laughs> ache and that's your, your C fibers. And, uh, you know, actually one of the things that you, you can do is you can, you know, rub the area. So you like hit your head or something, you go, ah, and you rub it and it can, it can somewhat temporarily numb some of those, um, um, the slow pain fibers. And so it can delay that rush of pain that comes in. So that's sort of where that, that quick mechanism comes from. And, uh, yeah, yeah, go. Oh, I was going to say, we have a lot of techniques. So I, because I do this or because we do this, we're constantly listening to messages that come in from all kinds of different places, yourself included, right? I mean, there'll be a neuroscience thing that I'll catch a little bit of that it'll say, if we do an experiment where we give somebody a complex task um, to manage while, ex while exercising in extreme conditions, that they can go 30% longer. I hear that stuff because if we can go 30% longer without being in pain, my day just got way better, right? <laughs> so we had, um, when we did the coast to coast trip, the second day of the trip, we had to go from basically sea level over a 6,300 foot pass. We needed to climb for six and a half hours. And there's no rest, right? The second you stop pedaling, you go backwards. And we both have little techniques that we use. For me, I do the 100 bottles of beer on the wall song in my head. And it's perfect because you have to remember what bottle of beer you're on. And there's a long enough pause in there that it tasks my brain with remembering that. On that particular climb that day, I went through 100 bottles of beer on the wall five times. And my commitment to myself was I wasn't going to stop singing that song in my head until we got to the top. And Tracy's got an even funnier one, actually, that she uses. Uh, yeah, my song is um, One Elephant Went Out to Play and invited some friends, and then you keep adding elephants onto it. So oh. that's my song. Um, You're counting but, up and Peter's counting down. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so just thinking about something else and having something to kind of distract your mind from the yeah, pain that's or what, what you're I was gonna say it almost yeah. seems more like a distractor and and yeah. and you know that's in you walked right into what I was going to ask next so you knew where I was going there but uh you know I, I wonder how much of you know it's hard to dissociate pain from discomfort um and it's almost like you know, a sharp pain, we can all understand, like, we very much understand you hit your head, or you stub your toe, or you get cut paper cut or something like that. And it's like, ah, you know, and that's one pain. And, and, you know, you can feel that during the ride, you get hit by a bug, or you get hit by a rock, or <laughs> yeah. you scrape your, you know, scrape, yeah. or, or you, God forbid, you crash or something like that. Uh, but you're right, it's more of a dull ache that just won't seem to go away. And it's like, it's, it's grabbing your perception and it, and it almost seems like, um, you know, if you can create a distractor that just makes a different percept in your mind, something to focus on that it's, uh, that it's sort of just gets rid of what you're thinking about elsewhere, which is, you know, I, I found fascinating about some of the, I guess we could say quick twitch 
type of sports. Um, one of the things that, you know, cause I, I've dabbled in endurance and in strength sports. And one of the things that draws me towards the strength and grappling type of world is the fact that you can completely shut off for, you know, five minutes or if you're squatting or something, because you don't have a choice. I mean, you're, you, you, the only thing that matters in that moment is standing up. If you're, yeah. you know, <laughs> underneath a very heavy squat bar, nothing else matters. <laughs> or if, you know, if you have a wrestler shooting at you and the guy's 20 pounds heavier than you, like, doesn't matter what was happening 30 minutes ago. This is what I'm focused on right now. But the thing that I always uh, found fascinating in the endurance sport world is that it's completely opposite. It's like your mind is what is playing tricks on you most of the time because you're experiencing that pain, but you're thinking about everything. Like unless you're sprinting, you know, at the end and you're going 45 miles an hour or something like that, 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 that's a little bit different, but like, what are, what kind of things like, was your mind during, during the long portions of the ride, how did, you know, those intrusive thoughts that were coming in at all times, how did it change from the beginning of that long journey, you know, in Washington state versus once you got towards the East coast, you know, how, how good were you at, at buffering out those intrusive thoughts that were constantly bombarding you <laughs> good or bad, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, I think that on a bicycle, you know, you're, you're going fairly slow and you're just cruising along. So for me being the stoker, so I'm the person that rides on the back of the bike. I don't have to worry about what the road looks like. I don't have to worry where we're going. I'm not, I can't worry about braking or shifting. None of that. So for me, I can really look around and enjoy what I'm seeing and take in what I'm seeing, whether it's visually or smelling it or whatever the case may be. So that Peter. keeps a lot of those <laughs> thoughts out because I'm too busy looking and enjoying what's around me. Um, so I don't really have too much of a problem with that when we're biking, you know, trying to keep that out because I just really enjoy what I'm seeing as we're moving along. And I always tell Peter every day when we get up, I can't wait to get on the bike and go. And I know it's going to be hard at times and especially the hills and, and struggles, but overall it just is, is such a adventure that you never know what's coming around that next corner. So for me, that's what keeps me going and keeps those, those thoughts out most of the time. So I think this is one of the really interesting dynamics of the tandem. We are not, doing the same. We have, we have separate tasks that we do. You know, Tracy off is usually navigating. Yeah. She's feeding me. Um, but we have to balance together, but yet I'm the one who's actually moving, you know, the handlebars. So for me, I almost, I, I just literally never get bored on the mm -hmm. tandem because think of it like having a bunch of programs running in the background, right? I am constantly balancing not only me, but Tracy too, because if I move the the wheel, uh, the handlebars very quickly, like you would on your single bike, there's a delay to when Tracy's weight, you know, comes into wow, balance. Yeah. Um, and then because the tandem is so heavy, it's more like driving a semi tractor trailer. I am looking way down the road. When we first try to start riding the tandem in the spring, I look at a pothole and invariably ride right through the thing. <laughs> I have to look way ahead and I have to learn, my brain has to learn how to adjust for the length of the tandem, Tracy's extra weight. So I think it's because I have so many things that I'm taxed with in the background that the things in the foreground are pretty mellowed. Um, I will expand and contract my focus 
basically depending on how emergent the situation is, right? If we're going mm. through an intersection, Tracing, talk to me as much as she wants. I'm not listening because I need to make sure I know where all the cars are. If, you know, there's bad weather, if the visibility is bad, um, you know, so yeah, I think I deal with it pretty consistently, actually, all the way across the trip. The thing that got different, though, is our nutrition on that first trip started to not hold up um, mm. because we were doing extreme things. We have really good nutrition for, I can ride a hundred miles in Snickers bars. So could you, right? And we understand the physiology of that. When yeah. you start doing that multiple days in a row, things start falling apart, right? The micronutrients aren't there. Um, so that to me was the, was the biggest fight. The thing is it took me two more major trips and working with a nutritionist to figure out <laughs> that that's why I was being a complete jerk. Yeah. Um, Oh, so you're saying like the new, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Your yeah. nutrition is like a, a more of a mindset modulator if you think about it as well. Well, the yeah. way I look at it, I had a roommate in college who was a diabetic. So I started to really, and Steve's an athlete also. So I started to understand how to keep Steve healthy by making sure we were eating at the right times, eating the right things, checking our blood sugar. And it wasn't until I started to really struggle that I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm basically functioning like a poorly managed diabetic at yeah. this point. And over the over the years, and again, working with the nutritionist, we figured out how to even that out. So a lot of the things that were very interesting in that book were basically due to malnutrition, by the way. <laughs> Just changing how you viewed everything. Exactly. Oh my gosh. That's interesting though that you said, I mean, because you know, it's one of the things that for someone on face value reading, they might not understand that, you know, past the first week or so, I mean, your glycogen is more or less gone. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so like if, if someone just picks up their bike and, you know, they ride once in a while and one day they decide, okay, I'm going to go a hundred miles and I've never done a hundred miles before, but I've done like 20 or something like that. You know, you have a decent amount of glycogen that'll push you a little bit further and, you know, then, then go into your fat stores after that. Um, but obviously, you know, you're starting out pretty much deficient in glycogen. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, I mean, which again, the glycogen doesn't, doesn't carry over all that far, especially when you're talking about five hour rides or something like that. Like it's going to be depleted anyways, yeah. but just that ability to be able to quickly raise your blood sugar is gone. Like even throughout the day when you're done biking and when you're walking around town and everything like that. And did you notice that, you know, as the, the time went on that, let's say irritability became easier, like little things would, would yeah. trigger more, more so than before. <laughs> yeah, I definitely got that way. I mean, once you got to New York, you read the book, so, you know, we almost decided to bail in New York. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it's just that you can't, when it's day after day after day and it's so intense, you just can't get on top of it again. And the funny thing, when we were writing the book, I was la I was laughing one day and Peter's like, what are you laughing at? And, I, and he had struggled and we were in Michigan and he was really pooped. He just couldn't go. And he's like, we just need to end today. And <laughs> we just couldn't figure out what was really going on with him. And when, I, when we were writing the book, I started laughing. I said, Peter, you know why you were struggling so bad in Michigan? We had gone eight days in a row over 100 miles. 
And how do you do that? You know, and it just caught up with him and he just had nothing left in the tank. So um, on our second and third trips, we try to keep on top of that a little bit better and our nutrition better, but you know, it just adds up. And all of a sudden you're like, oh no, I'm really in the hole here. So. So this is an interesting dynamic for me. So I don't know if you remember, but I used to be a cop. I was a police officer. So spent a lot of time, you know, working on three hours of sleep, trying to figure out my caffeine and donut, the perfect caffeine and donut ratio, right? To keep going. <laughs> Turned out Subway sandwich is a much better choice. But I used to work on my own in very dangerous situations when I was extremely compromised. I didn't drink any coffee until I bounced off my first curb in a squad car at 5.30 in the morning. I just, I was struggling with all that. So to me, when we started really struggling when we were getting around in New York, which a lot of it, you know, we know is nutritional now, I know how to function in that compromised zone. I know how to come out of it alive, how to keep other people. The problem for me was, it wasn't an emergency situation, but I was treating it as such. And as far as our team goes, I was dealing with dealing with our situation like this was an emergency. And the kind of the joke, kind of black humor joke between us now is that I needed everything to be going perfectly and within my control. And Tracy needed a hug. (laughs) (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. And that's one of the beauties though, about the endurance stuff. I mean, you and I both know a bunch of people that have tried, you know, crazy endurance, you know, activities, the Margie, things like that, where Mm -hmm. most of them don't even complete it until the second or the third time. So here's the intriguing part. What, what's different? You know, how are they able to complete this on the second and third time? I think your your conditioning, your training gets better, your nutrition gets better, but also your ability to read your situation and Mm -hmm. where you're at, to know when it's an emergency, to know when it's manageable, to be able to, it's like the surfer on the 50 foot wave. You know, if he's, if he gets on a 50 foot wave for the first time, everything's an emergency. But if he's done 45 footers before, it's not that significantly different and he'll probably be able to handle that. So like all this stuff, I mean, normally this is esoteric, but in this particular realm, this is like cool, right? I mean, <laughs> it's like, how do we figure out, you know, how to do a better job, um, you know, as a team with our training, with our nutrition, um, managing our, you know, our mental capacity. Yeah. It's all fun. <laughs> did, did you notice, um, so I guess, you know, what comes to mind when you talk about that, um, let's say like racing a criterium. So for anyone unaware of a criterium, it's a, it's a cycling race that's very fast and it typically only goes for like 30 minutes to an hour or 90 minutes, depending on which category of cyclist you are. Um, and I remember, you know, starting out racing criteriums, you're, you're on the gas all the time and any little gap opens up and you're sprinting and you're making sure you're here and there. And you know, you're just, you're expending so much energy just trying to do what you don't even know what you're trying to do when you're a a brand new cyclist in that kind of realm. And then suddenly as you move up, you know, through the ranks, you, you learn to know when you have to turn on the gas and when to just not even care about it. You know, if it's in the middle of the race and suddenly the pace is sort of yo-yoing and it's just, kind of mellowing out and a gap opens up, you know, take a second, then go, you know, it's not a big deal, but then suddenly, you know, a breakaway goes and you go, okay, 
we got 15 minutes left. There's a serious break of 10 guys or something like I got to go now. Like you don't really have a choice. And so you kind of understand when to empty that gas tank and when to not. Um, and you know, for extrapolating that out into what, what you guys were able to do with, um, with the ultra long type of things and bringing in more of the, the mental toughness into that. Now for the, for the subsequent rides that you've done across, you know, the U S or even in subsequent long rides, did you notice, um, sort of, you know, a, a change in the mentality of originally on that first trip, you know, where we, we see a big hill and it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> or you, you know, you remember, I remember the story in there. You said you lost the map or, or something. And it was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like for the record, Tracy yeah. lost the map. <laughs> Tracy yeah. lost the map. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and did you notice like, you know, in subsequent trips afterwards, if something like that happened, you're like, okay, you know, we can, we've figured out things worse than this before. We can figure it out again. And it just sort of flies off your shoulder a little bit more. You know, I think a little bit it does, you know, every day is unique and you run into all different things on every ride of every day. Um, but you are very familiar with how it feels, you know, how it's affecting you mentally and physically. And you, I think you can get on top of it a little bit better because you've done it. And it's like, okay, I've done that before. I can do it again. Um, so I think just doing the second and third trip and then also being on top of our nutrition really made things a lot easier for us, um, both, you know, getting phys or not physically, um, mentally working together and not getting on each other or getting, you know, so angry with each other. Um, it, it just, just like anything, I think the more you do it, the better you get at it. And I think that's what happened with us too on our long trips. So, you know, those are life, those trips that we've done are life changing, right? Um, the extremes we experience, the way we, I told somebody once, I, I, I knew this was going to be a challenge. I totally did not mean to test my marriage this far. I mean, <laughs> it was spooky for a while. Like, did I just mess this up? Could you hear about that? Right. You know, some guy takes his girlfriend winter camping and they're, they're done, <laughs> you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, bad idea. But now we will, something will happen. Like there'll be, even just in our normal lives, um, certainly when we're, when we're exercising, but even in our normal lives, it'll feel stressful. There'll be, there'll be something bad going on. Like, oh boy. And I'll look at Tracy or she'll look at me and I'll go, is this bad? She'll look at me and just chuckle and go, nope. <laughs> Cause we've seen bad, right? Yeah. So it, it resets that. I heard a thing one time, um, from a psychologist and they were saying that children that grow up in multi-generational families do much better in times of crisis because they've seen mom and dad go through tough times and come out on the other end. They've heard stories about great grandma and grandpa, you know, during World War II with rationing or having to put up the black, you know, so they have a perspective, they have a frame of reference. So when you've ridden for two straight weeks and 52 degree rain and you're out on the bike and it rains. I go, is this bad? She just goes, oh. now nah, we're good. <laughs> Cause we're going to be home in an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. This is nothing. And it's like 80 out. Yeah. <laughs> so it really, it really does yeah. change. And that, that well that we can go to, um, 
you were talking earlier about, you know, knowing when to use the gas, right? Knowing when to use your energy. Um, a good mutual friend of ours, Jeff Wentworth, taught me a very valuable lesson. Um, for the people that don't know, Jeff owned a bike shop that Nick worked at and that I lived at, basically. <laughs> um, and we were doing a ride. I think Jeff's probably 10 years older than I am. Um, I think he was a good rider. I don't know that he was ever great. But I took up off a hill one day, just like a bat out of hell, gave it everything I had was sure that I dropped everybody. I get 10 yards to the top of the hill. And so I sit up a little bit and I hear behind me, <laughs> that was the tough one. And it's Jeff. I'm like, how the heck is this old man behind me? And, and I said to him, I said, what the heck are you still doing here? And he said, bicycling is a lazy man sport. He said, it's all about knowing when to use your gas because the aerodynamic advantage, how we use our energy, it's all about not, if you'll excuse me, it's not about pissing your energy all over the place. It's using it for the task at hand. Pushing the tandem up a hill is horrible. It's extremely inefficient and it takes forever. So we will put every bit of gas we have into one pedal stroke at a time knowing that the advantage of burning up that energy is so much greater than pushing that that tandem up the hill because it'll take us hours to do that this way we can get to the top we can get something to eat we can get in earlier and have more time to recover so it's for you it's that crit it's giving everything at the end of the crit getting onto the guy's wheel ahead of you because you know you're going to be working 30 percent less if you can make it and hang on, right? So it's very, there's a lot of those calculations yeah. that we're making all the time too about what we do and how we do it. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the things you noticed um, crit racing or when I was racing cross-country skis um, for for EW Green Bay. And um, is that the, the people that would just drill it at the bottom of a hill were usually the ones that got dropped because the real race started at the top because you have the people that were just coasting up as best they could and you hit the top and then kaboom that's where the race starts and you know the first few times you go through that you go oh my god <laughs> i thought i was cool because i was the first one up the hill and suckly you know the cavalry comes <laughs> flying by you well i just you know i thought i was i was really fast because i got up there first in reality they just let you go because <laughs> that, that was basically my experience with town limit signs so when we're on a group ride we would sprint for the town limit signs and it took me forever to realize that at that moment when I felt like I was the best writer out there, it was probably because there was a town limit sign about to come up around the corner and everybody was sitting up and letting me take the lead. <laughs> it's, it's that dynamic, but you know, it, that brings up something that's interesting. And what I was curious about with the dynamic on the tandem, especially, um, you know, it, when, when you're doing endurance races, um, you know, or group rides or something like that, or you're doing group runs for, for runners out there. You know, one of the, the hard things is that when it starts to get tough, the only thing that you can see is the back of someone's head. And, you know, and so the, you know, and, and so you never know how hard that person in front of you is going. And you always, there's just, I don't know, it's just this weird mentality that you always assume that they're just lollygagging and having a good time and they're just you know not that they're not suffering at all and you're you know about redlining it and it plays with with your mentality because you just see their, their their hair blowing in the wind and you know did with being on the tandem 
did you have to be, um, you know, more orally communicative, I guess I could say, um, in order to prevent some, something like that from occurring, like from, from the, from the stoker position in the back, you know, when you're going up the hill and you're starting to get tired and all you can see is the back of, of Peter's head, you know, and you can smell him, but that's, you know, to get an idea of how hard he's working, but that's <laughs> about, about it. Yeah. You know, it is hard to tell sometimes, um, you know, we're six inches apart on the bike. Um, but I can't no, I can't see his expression or where he's at and how he's feeling. Um, he will let me know though. He he's pretty good about, and I can tell certain things like if he's getting really grumpy, I know he's hungry. And then I just kind of say, do you want something to eat? And he'll go, no, I'm fine. And then I'll have to ask like three or four times. And finally he'll take something and then he'll feel better and he won't be so grumpy. So that's one of the keys for me is when he gets really grumpy, if I say something and I don't say it precisely, like he likes me to, and he'll, he snaps back at me. I'm like, okay, he needs something to eat. Um, you got to get one of those, uh, you know, they do the studies in the monkeys and, uh, to reinforce, <laughs> they have a button that you push and it puts juice into their mouth. Yeah. So that, they have like this straw. So yes. you, you got to get a juice button from the back. And if he starts getting grumpy, you just exactly just push it, just yep. push some juice in his mouth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. Like when we're like, you know, under an extreme effort, if you know where the finish line is, you can make it, but extreme effort not knowing where the finish line is it's a nightmare right you how do you know how to measure out your energy or how do you know when to give up or or to push just that little bit harder because you're going to get a respite so when we're climbing an extreme grade i'll actually call out to tracy how far we are like i'll Mm. say you know we've got 100 yards left and I think helps. that helps her a lot. And yeah. so that's one of the jobs that I figured out that I can do because I can't, she can't see 30 degrees straight ahead of her. I, I have to duck for her to see what's going on up there. And sometimes I'll actually even do that, yeah. you know, just when I know she's kind of struggling, I'll just, you know, get my head down so she can get her bearings. Um, we have the same thing same but different thing with me so i have i'm a navigator i have this like global gps in my head you know i'm like that pigeon in the box thing right um (laughs) if you know what it is you know what it is um tracy not so much to her it's much more um technical she has to say follow the line whatever but tracy's the navigator so i get really disoriented on the bike if I don't know where I am because sometimes you have to make a right turn to go left if it if it's down and around and under the bridge so she has discovered over the years that at the beginning of the day if we go through the map together so I understand generally what's going on then I stop trying to navigate for her because I was just uncomfortable with that scenario so she manages I think we both manage each other's strengths and weaknesses Um, it's a huge advantage to have the two of us there because we monitor each other all the time. We know each other really well. When, when Tracy doesn't respond well to me or quickly, when she starts messing up, if she's navigating, it's usually because she's sick or bonked. There's, there's Mm -hmm. something going on because I know what normal is. I know what her baseline is. And when that's off, then it's like, then we take a break and then we, you know, kind of assess and figure out, which I think makes us a lot safer. I think it probably makes us more efficient. Um, we can ride, you know, faster and stronger because of that as well. Uh, one of the things people don't think about is that the tandem, we are the sum of the parts, right? 
but there's like, you know, you hear two people can do more work than two individual people. That's mm-hmm. us on the tandem. The tandem basically doesn't move with only one person pedaling. And if we're not in sync, we're not as effective. Like we've had days when I've gotten sick and not been a hundred percent and she'll try to make up for my deficiency and she blows up. And I try have tried to do the same thing for her. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly trying to figure out what the tandem is capable of and what resources we have to put towards moving that as quickly as possible. So I may not be able to go as quickly as I'm capable of that day, but if I try to make up for her, I blow up and then we both blow up and then we don't go anywhere for the day. Um, And that always just intrigued me um, because it's not just us individually. There's that, there's that third dimension, right? Yeah. Does, does it, does training and, and riding all uh, on the tandem, does it strengthen your individual riding capability and the fact that now you have to, you know, you're on a tandem, if you're going up a hill and one of you is blown up or like you said, bonk, which is just like, uh, you, you lose enough glycogen and, and you start to drop your blood sugars basically with the extreme endurance sports. But, um, d- does the fact that you don't really have a choice at that point, you sort of have to pull weight, uh, make you stronger kind of like, you know, on a, if you're doing a group ride and you're in a faster group than you normally at, and you're 20 miles from home and <laughs> you somebody, don't know where you are. Yeah. yeah and someone hits the gas, like, well, yeah. you're going to get strong. Yeah, <laughs> you're gonna get us be a stronger rider. There's no doubt about that because now you don't have a choice. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's the going up the hill. So for people that don't know, the tandem is is very fast on the flat because aerodynamically we have the wind resistance of one person. I've got this whole engine behind me that's costing us nothing in terms of oh, wind yeah, resistance. I didn't think about yeah. that. On the downhill, we're heavy. I mean, fully loaded. We're about 450 pounds. So we, I mean, I usually have. On a I suppose, steep, yeah, because you got yeah. the, the people so on the path. On a, yeah. on a yeah. steep grade, I'm holding that bike back at 45 miles per hour. But on the uphill, like on your on your single bike, you know, you come down a big hill and then you're like, boo, I'm just going to ride this momentum halfway up the next hill, right? Nope. Yeah, on the tandem, you hit the trough and it comes to a dead stop. And then there's nothing to do to get up the other side except horse it. And so we will both do whatever it takes to, to keep that thing going up. And it's almost unspoken now. I have absolute trust with Tracy. She has never, ever taken a beat off. And I know she won't. So then that allows me as the captain to manage both of our energy, but I know I have whatever she has, you know, at my disposal. And so I think that's really the only way it works. I mean, if she were to try to manage that back from where she is, yeah. it it just, it isn't a thing. Yeah. Well, and the good thing with us, we're both very similar riders. We're both yeah. road riders. So we have a really high cadence. So we're usually at 90 revolutions per minute. So it's easy for us to get in sync that way because we ride that way and we're comfortable with that. Um, Peter had someone on the back of the tandem recently and he was doing the 90 revolutions per minute. And she's like, can we please slow down? You know, cause she just, it wasn't her pace, you know? So she was really struggling to keep up and felt like they, why are we going this fast? You know? So, so that makes it easier for us to work together because we're very comfortable with that cadence and that pace. 
Meanwhile, Peter looks back and Tracy's got her feet off, you know. Yeah. Just yeah, go on. <laughs> <laughs> the, drives, the pedals it, are just spinning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It drives me crazy because anytime you go by a group of people, somebody on the tandem, invariably somebody's going to yell, she's not pedaling. And I'm super <laughs> sensitive to that because it's very interesting. I mean, Tracy has a master's degree in public administration. She's managed municipalities for a living, right? She's a she's a village board trustee. This woman has a lot of ups and is yeah. very capable, but the the positioning of the two looks subservient, right? It looks right. like she's yeah. not doing anything or carrying or carrying her, you know, part her, of the load. Yeah. So I have to remind myself they know not of what they speak, right? <laughs> I mean, they're just being silly, yeah. but it really actually bothers me when people do that because yeah. I couldn't do what I do without her. Like I actually question whether I could ride across the country by myself because I'm so used to doing this, you know, as a team and having that support. There'd be a whole different, you know, mentality and dynamic. I, I'm sure I could, but I would have to learn how to do that by myself. Yeah, and, and I mean, especially from the back. I mean, your yeah. your sole job is, you know, besides being a mental motivator, but uh, I mean, you are the engine. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're putting yeah. in power on the pedals, you know, yeah. and, and, you know, not to describe, I mean, obviously from the front, you're also putting power in on the pedals, yeah. but you know, you have, you're navigating, you're, you're doing the brakes, you're moving the bars, you're keeping, you know, helping with balance because you sort of have a, a, a better perspective in something, you know? And so it's, you know, from the back and not always not be, yeah. it, it can be, you know, just as hard leg, you know, I mean, or I should say more hard sometimes on the legs, um, because you're just, you're there to pump. Well, yeah. I can give you a good example of that. So when we start out on the tandem, when we first started riding, we would both, you know, be standing like, you know, one foot on the ground, one foot in the pedal. And then we would both try to get up and get going at the same time. And it was crazy hard because, you know, then there's that that pedal stroke, that next pedal stroke, we often need to coast to get your foot in. Coordinating that with two people was honestly terrifying. And a friend of ours, he and his wife are, are experienced tandem couples. He goes, have Tracy clip in first, meaning I stabilize the bike. Tracy goes up, puts both feet in. And then when we start out, she has nothing to do but put power to the bike which then allows me to work less hard and focus more on balancing and coasting and then getting my feet in when I'm comfortable. Um, so it's, I think it's a kind of a good example of, of the benefit, but also how you have to manage the dynamic of having, you know, two horsepower you yeah. know, on there or whatever it is. Yeah. So next up is going to be the tandem on the rollers. It really test the balance. Oh, gosh, no way. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting. There's There's been a... Tandems have been very rare for most yeah. of the 20, 30 years that we've been riding them, 20 years. Um, but we're starting to see more and more. And then the more people you have, we're starting to see, you know, mountain bike tandem couples yeah. now that are doing things. Amazing. I would probably give wow. it a rip. There's no way Tracy's going to try that. <laughs> yeah. It's like the stoker on a mountain bike tandem has to like anticipate exactly what's going on. Cause you can't, you don't have that brief second between you've got to be moving when the captain is. And I'm always amazed at those tandem mountain bike riders. It's just phenomenal what they can do. Instead of calling them the stoker, you'll just call them the pinball. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all the trees in the back. Yeah, Nick. Before we before we did this today, Tracy and I were kind of talking, and we were thinking that it might be interesting, especially because you're talking about you know the neuroscience, the physiology, all these things, to to talk just real briefly about what some of the extremes that we've experienced, you know, on the on the tandem, because yeah. the extremes are what to define the capability, right? It's not yeah. who can do what on a you know, 72 degree, partly cloudy day. So the longest ride that we've ever done on the tandem in one day was a hundred loaded. Yeah. Fully loaded was 157 miles. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) My butt hurts just thinking about not even, well, not just my butt, but (laughs) yeah, everything. (laughs) In all fairness, it was in North Dakota Mm -hmm. and it was the flattest straightest most uninterrupted road apparently in the united states and we had a dead straight 35 mile an hour tailwind oh god (laughs) we were just flying but we literally (laughs) went from bismarck almost all the way to fargo north dakota it was it was crazy so such a long way a lot of the a lot of the time at one point i kept looking down between my feet tracy goes what are you doing now imagine this from the back right and i said give me a minute give me a minute something's wrong here and she goes, what's wrong? And I said, I think I dropped the chain, but I don't understand because the chain is still on the on the chain ring. I was out of gears. We were on the flat going 40 <laughs> miles an hour because basically we were doing five miles an hour worth of work, right? Yeah. Um, you know, we did that six and a half hour climb in the Cascades um, from basically zero to 6,000 feet. We've ridden in temperatures over 100 degrees. We've ridden in temperatures below freezing. And recently we had some 11 degree wind chills in, I think we were in Nebraska. Nebraska, And then last spring in Kansas, Nebraska, we were riding in 50 mile an hour crosswinds. I literally didn't even know that was doable (laughs) at one point to get same Does the same mantra, you know, your, uh, your 99 (laughs) bottles of beer on the wall. Like if you're going into a 30 mile an hour headwind, like, compared to going up a hill i mean the yeah. resistance is pretty similar does does that same thing come through your head as is you're just getting blasted with wind no not for me it's like the wind is just so intense and you just you just want it to stop and you know when you're going across the country you go in the same direction predominantly you're going to be heading west or east or whatever way you're going so yeah. you can't like turn around and go back <laughs> you got to keep going into that 35 mile an hour headwind oh. um yeah. So yeah, you uh, singing doesn't seem to help when the wind is really nasty. <laughs> so the thing about this is that, you know, you, you test dynamics, right? To overload. So you know where that line is. So just to let you know, with a 50 mile an hour crosswind, we could actually ride in it, but we were at 100%. There were no thoughts going through my mind because everything was dialed into me reacting to keeping that bike upright. Yeah. We went from stopping every 45 to, to taking a break every 45 minutes to an hour to every half hour, not because we were tired. It's because we couldn't drink. Yeah. I couldn't reach for the water bottle oh, and yeah. be sure that I could keep us from pancaking the bike. So, but it's cool though. It's because all this experience, all these things that we've done all these years literally made that possible and within a reasonable safety margin there, but we were riding 
we'd ride one day and then have to take two days off until the wind would shift. We actually supposed to be a 1200 mile trip. We bailed at 450 because Tracy's comment was as much as I like, you know, eating pizza and drinking beer in a hotel room, I actually was hoping we could do a bike ride. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Does the, uh, you know, you know, with the extreme conditions, whether it be rain or cold or hot or, you know, going up a hill or any of those things, you, you, a lot of it comes down to mental toughness, mental grit. And obviously there's been a lot of work that's been done on, on looking, uh, at building resilience. Um, and especially endurance, ultra endurance is sort of one of the models for, uh, mental resilience for a long period of time. Um, and certainly, you know, it's, I always find it like this sort of split where you have people that, you know, they've trained well and their bodies can relatively handle it. And they're, you know, and it it purely is this sort of mental drive that'll get you through it. And then you have the other people that perhaps aren't as conditioned. And all of a sudden they say, you know what, I'm going to make myself mentally tough. I'm going to run an ultra endurance marathon. And I run it with like three broken feet and a broken (laughs) leg. and, And it's like, well, you know, at some point, yeah, we're kind of teetering between like mental grit and just yeah. stupidity, <laughs> like, you know, that's a but clinical like, term. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Clinically speaking, like, okay, well, you got three torn ligaments and a broken foot. Maybe you should stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Heal it up and do it later. Yeah. But, you know, but, but when, you know, what I've, what I, uh, what I, what I find impressive is that, you know, your bodies have held up for pretty well. Um, for many endurance sports, especially running and things like that. Um, I know Peter, you were doing, um, marathons and I, and Tracy, you were also running, right? Yeah, um, I did. Or, I did halves, never went the full, but did some halves. Yeah. But, but I mean, like, so your, your body's held up pretty well, um, yeah. especially to all the training and the distance and, and things like that. But, you know, with the, the mindset exercise is one of the, most potent and one of the only known stimulators for, you know, neurogenesis, adult neurogenesis, as they call it. So, um, basically exercise can release different, they're called neurotrophic factors, um, brain derived, <coughs> excuse me, brain derived neurotrophic factor is the the famous one, um, that sort of stimulates new cell production in the brain, which is a novel, it's the only known mechanism for doing that, um, in adults, because normally we just lose neurons. And it also, you know, helps uh, stabilize some of the synapses, as they call it. So it strengthens the communication and it keeps those communication networks strong between neurons. Um, and, you know, do you, ha- during the times of training and during the times of doing these sort of events or even just during normal everyday training, how much do you notice that your mental capacity, um, you know, stays? sharp or, or does it start to get foggy during times when you're not training as much or anything like that? You know, I think I, I notice that when I'm not working out as much, um, or taking me three, four days off in a row. Um, and mentally it seems like I'm not as sharp as when I'm exercising regularly. So I think, you know, it's the release of the endorphins or the, just the physical part of it, I think helps keep you mentally sharp. Um, my mom has Alzheimer's. She's got it, um, has had it for many years now. And I think one of the things that helped her as she aged was she worked out like a mad woman. I mean, she would go Mm. to the Y and she would take two, three classes almost every day. And I think back to that and I think that maybe that helped 
offset the dementia and push it later into her life. And I'm hoping as I age that it'll be pushing that out as well. Um, so yeah, I think that it definitely makes a difference with the physical activity mentally and keeping you very sharp. Yeah. So my variation of that is, you know, I was, I was a Nick, you'll totally relate to this, but you know, I was a, I was a typical boy growing up, right? I was just hyper. I would want to do anything except sit and learn to read or do anything in a controlled environment. And athletics was the way that I kind of joke and say that I was able to keep myself within socially acceptable limits, right? And I've, I've built a good career. I have a good family. I've had some amazing experiences and jobs and athletics, I believe, has allowed me to focus because I'm 60 years old and I still am I don't want to overplay the ADD thing, but without me having exercise to the point of calming myself, um, I can't do what I do. It's also a catch 22 because you generate more energy then. So then you got to manage more energy. Um, but no, I really do believe that it makes a difference. And I look at it the same way Tracy does. I have a father that's got, you know, full blown dementia. Um, so, you know, you control what you can, right? Um, so I don't see, but here's my, here's my, here's my parameter. The one thing we can't do is kill ourselves. When your national pedestrian and bicycle safety consultants dying is very bad for business. And, but short of that, you know, testing, testing your limits, finding out what you're capable of. And then as I become an older athlete and a trainer that used to say better 90% than not at all. And he almost, it took me a long time to realize he always said that right after I hurt myself and he just keeps saying it. And now I get it. So now when I train, I never train to hundred percent. I train to 90%. And if I have a tweak or something's off, I back the heck off of it because as an older athlete, it takes too long to recover. The price is too great. And as when Tracy and I are touring, you know, I always, whether it's carving a, you know, a hairpin turn or how much energy we're going to use for the day or the week, I always try to keep that a good 20% buffer there because we never know when we're going to be in a circumstance where I need that safety margin or we need that yeah. safety margin. Uh, so, you know, I think as in, you know, uh, how tight am I going to get in that corner on a crit, right? Um, such goes life. I mean, those those lessons, I think, apply across the board. I mean, this for us, this is an investment yeah. um, that mm -hmm. we've made for our entire lifetime. And I think I'm feeling like, at least for now, we're proof of concept. And I'm very pleased that I got it right. <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, I'll go on on record and say that uh, you guys were pretty much aging in reverse as far as I can tell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, compared to, to others, you know, at a, at a similar age, you see, yeah. you know, can barely walk around getting their, their hips yeah. and knees replaced. And, you know, they've worked all their lives to now have enough, you know, cash flow yeah. to, to do things that they want to do. And then now suddenly they can't even move anymore. And it's yeah. like, you know, yeah. Being able to to see you guys move is is impressive, um, and certainly not as a, a limitation, I guess I yeah. should say. Well, a couple of years ago, my financial advisor said we were talking about retirement, and he said, "Peter, you know, most people their maximum earning potential, and take note of this, young man, their their maximum <laughs> earning potential is in their fifties, right?" And he said, "The problem is most people are so unhealthy they cannot take advantage of that." Um, so. 
yay for us, right? Um, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's impressive, and it and it's a, a testament. And I've seen a few other people do it as well. I mean, you you sort of see both both ends of the spectrum, you know, both hitting it hard, um, and then you see the people that retire, and then they're pretty much couch ridden, and uh, you know, they become somewhat senile and and you know just stick to the tv and uh because they can't really move much anymore and then you know they usually pass at a at an early age and then you see the others that have forced themselves um you know or not even forced themselves i shouldn't say that because that's sort of a, a bad mindset but the ones that that chose and took a liking to the benefits of keeping their, their bodies healthy um you know then it's almost like once they retire it's just that's another stepping stone and they still have, you know, a good portion of your life. It's not like you're just stepping on the slide down to the, down to the grave. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I got a question for you and I, I know you did a segment on, you know, obesity and, and, and being fat. And we, yeah. I, I think we understand that there are psychological, but they're also physiological, you know, things at play. Right. Tracy and I are both, I think, extremely lucky because we love to move. We love to exercise. When I'm in the gym pushing at my limit, I'm laughing like a madman because I'm like, oh, yep, there it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and for other people, I think it's it's not fun. It's There's discomfort associated. So the person that I'm rooting for when I'm at a track meet is that person that finishes last. When I see a marathon or a triathlon, those people coming in at the end, that's to a degree of magnitude harder for them than it is for me because I love doing that stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't give myself maybe as much credit as other people do because I think it's easy. It's who we are. And certainly we've embraced it and developed it. Um, but that's part of the reason that we do what we do, right? That's part of the reason we have, you know, the pedestrian and bicycle safety consulting business. I know things that we can use to help people stay safe so that they're not worried about dying if they go for a bike ride to try to lower their cholesterol because they don't have knees that'll handle the running or the walking, right? That's crazy. We need to do that. Or why we chose to write our books, for instance, we could go and do these trips and not tell anybody about it. But we always kind of joke, I don't care if somebody rides their bike across the country, but if somebody chooses to ride their bike to the grocery store and get a gallon of milk and that makes them happier and healthier and they did it because they went, hey, if Peter and Tracy can ride to California, we can, you know, ride over to the grocery store. I feel really, really, really good about that. I mean, I think we all need to use the capacities we have to help people as best we can. And that's one thing we can do. Which I think is, is fantastic. And especially, you know, you bring up there at the end, um, when we, when we talk about training, you know, we always say it's like this segmented block of time where we're going to push our bodies to its physical limit. But in reality, I mean, if you're biking to the grocery store to get milk and, you know, some of the, the strongest riders that, you see turn into racers or some of the strongest riders that turn into ultra athletes are like, um, like bicycle delivery people, you know, the, the carriers that are, that are out there in the traffic and they just are, just have these gigantic, like sculpted calves from the gods <laughs> and, you know, and, uh, all of a sudden they, they join up on a, a group ride or something or a race on their single speed or, or even a fixed gear bicycle. 
and they just blow the competition away and you know everyone gets gets pissed off because they're like well he has never trained in you know they've never trained in their life and it's like yeah well they put in more miles every single day than you do in your training just for delivering pizzas so yeah. you know and they do it with a 40 pound backpack so what yeah. is your excuse <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know I mean, to me i think that whole the whole idea of the sports gene right the the if you don't develop the natural ability you have, you'll get smoked by somebody that developed lesser ability to a higher degree. Um, and that's kind of why I let off saying, you know, Tracy's got some ups genetically. There is, there's just no doubt about that. But I was watching her on the BOSU ball today, standing on one foot, doing bicep curls with 20 pound weights. And you don't get that if you don't maximize that potential, right? And in my case, I would never get to do the really cool things I did if I wasn't pushing it 99% of, of capability. So um, it's always hard for me when I see somebody who could go do something who's doing nothing. Um, and I'm always really excited when we've got people out there, you know, pushing whatever they've got to work with. We're all just, we're all trying to keep up with Tracy's athletic abilities. Yeah. Let's be honest. <laughs> She's so humble about it. It's so annoying. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so you're blowing by us on the road and it's like, yeah. over here is saying, yeah, I, I, you know, yeah, I, I dabble. Peter, Peter makes it up to be a little more than it is. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got, I got like one more question and then, okay. and then, uh, wrap it up. Uh, Writing, writing the book coast to coast on a tandem, you know, and, and of course we, we only covered sort of uh, surface level for a lot of topics, but um, when, if you, you know, you wrote the book after the ride. And so, you know, for all of the, the things, and I know you're journaling and blogging a, along the way, um, but how do you think, you know, writing the book because it was, it, I found it to be hilarious for, for a lot of things. And it, you yeah. know, it's lighthearted and it brings, uh, it's lighthearted and it brings a lot of the aspects of cycling that are, um, outside of, like you talked about the bears in the tent and, you know, <laughs> worrying about the bears and th you know things like that. And those things are like, you know, they're humorous after afterwards, when you go back and you look at it and you, you know that you made it through it. But how do you think it would have changed if you were writing the book? as you were, you know, actually cycling, like if you were having a voice recorder or something like that, do you think uh, it would have taken a different light? You know, I think it would have been harder to do that. Cause when you think yeah. of it, we bike all day, we're tired, we got to get laundry done, we got to eat, we got to, you know, whatever. And sometimes even doing the blog or Peter doing Facebook posts, it was like, oh, I really am struggling to do this tonight. So I think you know, maybe a recorder would have been easier because you could just talk into it. That might have been a, a good way to go. But um, writing it as you're going, I think, really would have been tough for, for me especially, I think, to stay on top of it and be able to do it and and make it coherent. I mean, but in some ways we did write it while we were going because we were doing a blog every day. Yeah. I was posting yeah. to Facebook. But having said that, we all know that you sanitize social media. So when we... All right. little uh technology wonder that's but we are we have returned and we are back and we made it through a stressful time <laughs> Re, yes. re-endurance athletes there's nothing that we can't accomplish exactly. so it's all about managing stress my friend yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> and i will say you know um uh one of the things that i do admire about the two of you is that um you know sort of the uh sometimes i like to call it laughing through the battlefield um you know, just being able to keep a, a, a good mindset through 
throughout everything. And I think endurance, you know, sports, um, you know, depending on other anyone's opinions on it, I don't care what anyone's opinions on it. The thing that I, you know, notice a lot with with endurance sports is that people are pretty good and resilient at, um, you know, keeping a pretty good mindset, uh, throughout things, you know, even, and especially in like a group setting where you're in a group ride or something. And all of a sudden a thunderstorm comes <laughs> crashing down and, uh, you know, you ride up next to the person next to you and you say, how you doing? And they go, uh, thriving best time <laughs> of my life, <laughs> you know, 40 mile an hour winds getting pelted and lightning going in the back. And, you know, it's just like, Best time of my life. <laughs> well, you know, you know what I think we learn as endurance athletes. So, you know, Tracy was a, you know, a, a quick twitch, you know, athlete that that comes and goes booms, right? You know, you, you can, you can live or die on, um, you can go into fight or flight for that amount of period easy. Yeah. But I started to learn as I was a cop that I couldn't operate in fight or flight mode for an eight hour shift, not for two, eight hour shifts. And ultimately, I ended up not doing that job. And I think one of the things that we've learned over the years is that you, when you're an endurance athlete, you can't go to that well, right? I mean, you need to have that in case the dog does actually run out from under the trailer home right next to you, or Mm -hmm. the car does try to cut you off. If you're dipping into that too much, when Tracy was learning how to run, you know, I would say, you know, you can pick up the pace, but you're only probably going to be able to pick up the pace three, four five times in this half marathon. And then you're you got nothing left in that in that tank. And I think that's what we've learned, I think, about, you know, the endurance sports, but also about life, too. You just mm-hmm. get better at going. Is this an emergency? Because sometimes it is and you need to react to them. But yeah. most of the time it's not. Um, and you're better served if you don't go into that mode. Yeah. yeah, I guess I've never, I never thought about putting it in that perspective where, you know, obviously, um, putting in like d- emptying the gas tank as far as energy reserves go like that, that's something. Um, but, but thinking about the fact that even your adrenaline response is sort of limited. And if you're always at that heightened adrenaline response and, you know, where do you go from there? Yeah. Uh, you know, especially, um, firefighters, um, paramedics, first responders, especially paramedics and uh, first responders are used a lot of times for chronic stress studies, um, you know, because they, you, you give, you give a stressful situation and they just don't have that response anymore. It's just always flatlined. They don't get the cortisol spike. They don't get the norepinephrine that, you know, the adrenaline, it's just, and yeah. you know, the predictors of health outcomes long-term are, are terrible when you have no response. It's almost like <clears throat> even within the, the neural networks that I study, um, in the brainstem that control breathing, um, a, one of the, one of the things that can predict pathology is the lack of flexibility. So it's almost like you need a given amount of instability within a neural network in order to give it flexibility. And, and mm-hmm. if you make it too rigid, which you would almost think is a good thing because it's very stable, it's terrible because now it can't, you know, go up and down or anything. And you just, you're sort of succumbing to any of the varying input that's coming in at all times. So exactly to that point. So I knew what my physiological responses were to the stress I was under as a cop. Um, they were what you'd predict, you know, numbness in the fingers, irritability, can't sleep, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And at that time, I think the life expectancy for a cop was 54 years and it wasn't from mm-hmm. getting shot. It was from, you know, cardiac 
issues, you know, um, you're living on cortisol. And that was one of the things that, that convinced me that I need to find another line of work. You're right. Because I could deal with crazy stuff mm-hmm. flatlined. Now, when Tracy and I are in an emergency situation, you know, when a double bottom logging truck comes by you on a mountain <laughs> road and knocks you all the heck over the place, the ability to shut out stress and manage the situation is extremely beneficial in the short run. In the long run, though, that'll kill you, right? So, yeah, yeah, I mean, those are some of the awarenesses that I bring to this. And so I really appreciate the things that we're able to do, but I have something to compare and contrast it with. That's interesting. Yeah, because I, my brother, uh, being a police officer, uh, sheriff's department. Um, and, um, so I'm, I'm a triplet, so I have, uh, you know, two other counterparts and, um, and whenever I go home, um, for holidays or anything, a lot of times I'll go and train. Um, they have sort of not necessarily a CrossFit, but sort of, let's say functional type of fitness gym, um, that a lot of them, him and and the rest of the, the, he's on the SWAT team. So him and the rest of the SWAT team train on. And yeah, those guys are, are hilarious. And, um, but you know, I do often wonder sometimes long-term, you know, because nothing, nothing phases, um, you know, and, and which is good. And, but in the long term, like you said, you know, if you don't have that ability to have some flexibility in that stress response, uh, you know, that's, that's also not necessarily a, uh, a good thing in the long run. So interesting. <laughs> But yeah. been there, done that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, hey, this uh, this hour sort of like flew by. That's uh, yeah. actually we're like uh, our hour fifteen already. So, <laughs> is there uh, any any plugs? I, so you got the book. I know you're writing a, a new book. Uh, Route sixty six is, is something about um, yeah bicycling bicycle bicycling Route sixty six will be yeah, the bicycling historic historic Route sixty six. So we did our first book is about our northern tier trip. Um, we went from Bar Harbor, excuse me, Bellingham, Washington to Bar Harbor. So that was our first book. Um, our second trip was Mississippi River. And then our third bicycle trip was um, Route 66. And our editor suggested we write our second book about Route 66. So that's our book that we're working on right now is about our trip around along Route 66. Kind of to the whole point here. So you've read the the first book, right? So you mm-hmm. saw the struggles that we went through. We talked about some of the nutrition, you know, things that we've learned. The writing writing the second book about the third trip is fascinating because we didn't almost get divorced. We, we didn't we didn't fall apart because of bad nutrition, right? We learned and we were riding in some extreme conditions. The mountains of New Mexico, 100 degree heat, you know, wind, rear rear decay, um, derailleur cables breaking, you know, yeah. 60 miles from any town. So we had all of that kind of stuff, but our our strategies, right? Our experience for dealing with those um, made it a much smoother experience for us interpersonally. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think therefore physically also, because we weren't pissing energy all over the yeah. place, you know, doing things we didn't need to do. And so the cool thing about this book is that it will still have, you know, all of that fun stuff and intrigue, but not quite as edgy, but that leaves us lots more room 
to talk about the really cool history of Route 66, that tension point in the U.S., going from horse and buggy to cars and, you know, family road trips, um, those kinds of things. So it's a uh, it's a lot of fun for us to do it. So we're it should we're hoping it'll be even better than the first one. Is is Route 66? I'm just curious for fact. Is that is it a uh, a known bicycling route? Um, or did you guys sort of come up with it on the fly? No, um, Adventure Cycling is the organization that we get all our maps from. So they do yeah. have Route 66 maps. Okay. So it is, you know, some parts you're actually on Route 66, other parts you are not because Route 66 is not in existence anymore. So there is a, a route. Um, we started in Green Bay, biked down to Chicago, and that's the official start of Route 66 uh-huh. in Chicago. So then we headed west out to Santa Monica, California was the ending point. Um, but yeah, there's a route. Yeah. per se. The route's got a lot going for it because yeah. think about old Route 66. So 1926, yeah. right? Cars are going 30 to 40 miles per hour. The roads are narrower. Um, they're not as you know refined. This is not freeway Interstate, yeah. typically. Um, so in terms of that, it's almost bucolic. Now in some places, Route 66 has become the frontage road for I-44, which, you know, uh is is not as nice but on the other hand when it's 95 degrees that day it does give you the opportunity to stop at the loves you know convenience <laughs> store to get something to eat and you know so those kinds of things um but there's still lots of really cool kitschy stuff along the way and you know the world's biggest rocking chair you know yeah. i mean where else are you gonna see that <laughs> on a bike nick come on yeah <laughs> Exactly. You get to uh, experience all that is. But I, I mean, it's cool because you get to see all the different cultures. And I, I loved how you were able to um, talk to a bunch of different people um, throughout the, the trip. It wasn't just yeah. this lone, you know, lone yeah. cycling adventure, but it was uh, almost, you know, more of a community type experience of, of learning throughout the, the, the entire trip. Yeah, there's an online community called Warm Showers, and it's a community of touring cyclists. So when we roll into a town, we can just reach out and they'll other cyclists will often host us. It's kind of like couch surfing, that kind of stuff. Um, But there's no money exchanged. What's exchanged is our currency is our stories. The currency is the fact that we're on the road and they would like to be on the road. And we say all the time that we've probably made a dozen lifelong friends off of literally 12 hour interactions with these people because we're predisposed, right, to like the th- same things. I mean, our connection clearly has been, you know, over cycling and then having a, a bike shop in common, that kind of stuff. Um, but with warm showers, it's the same kind of stuff. So we've had um, other couples that were thinking about riding their tandem across the country reach out to us the year after we did it say what's it like you know and the woman said to trace i'm a little nervous about being on the back of the bike and you know so we talked through that and then they came and stayed with us during their trip and we'll be friends with these people forever um so it's uh it's very empowering for us one of the neat things that tracy always says about our trips she said when we go on these long tours and get kind of in the heart of america and we're seeing them from the point of view of a bicycle that it renews her faith in humankind and if there's anything that we need right now it's to renew our faith in humankind but people regardless of their political affiliations their backgrounds anything when they see us i think on our bicycles it's just it stimulates their curiosity it stimulates their innate need or desire to help um and it's uh 
I think they like to hear our story. So yeah. it's a it's a really neat thing. I mean, honestly, we're gonna be in Mont we're gonna be in Montreal next summer, and we'll be biking back from there. We can't wait to get or this summer. Yeah. Can't wait to get back on the road because it's yeah. where we're happiest. Cool, bicycling, bicycling all over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you always look at your twenty mile route, and you're like, yeah, that's a good route. And then you see yeah. you're going from Washington to New York, and you're like, oh, <laughs> yeah, community's bigger. <laughs> I remember doing a twenty mile training ride for a marathon one time, or run for a marathon. And I remember getting home and saying to Tracy, "I am never ever going to bitch about biking twenty miles again." <laughs> yeah, literally. Yeah, you can't you can't memorize every pine cone on the, uh, the Route 66. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Your, your training route. Well, yeah. thanks for coming on the show, Peter and Tracy. This has been uh, a fascinating uh, dive into the, the world of cycling and, and training and uh, tandem. And uh, the, 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 I think most people should aspire to, uh, you know, the things that you, you two have been able to endure, especially, um, you know, a, a task that on face value, many would look and look at it to be a kiss of death for many marriages, yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, the, in fact, the opposite night, you know, I wonder how much of that is the, that, you know, the, still the innate mammalian primitive um, tasks where you have companionship and uh, you know, it's sort of the two people that have created the family against, you know, natural stressors that come along with living out in the wild certainly can, can strengthen that. But, but uh, did you have anything else uh, before I, before I forget, you already plugged the book. Is there anything else that you wanted to plug before? Yeah. uh, I mean, the, the book is available. Yeah. The book is available on our website. Uh, So just we org, or it's on Amazon as well. Uh, The new book will be out later this year. Uh, We're blogging about it. So if people want to know kind of how that process is going and where we're at, um, you know, just, just Google we bike ETC or Peter Flukey and you'll find them. And uh, people have questions. We're always happy, happy to answer and, interact i mean we usually learn more from the questions people ask us than i think the people that ask the questions do yeah <laughs> perfect and for all of you that are listening thanks to listening to the neural network uh apple spotify leave us a rating leave us a review www.theneuronetwork.org and thanks for another episode <laughs>